Crow Talk. Crow Talk. Crow Talk. Film Squawk. Promising Young Woman. Written and directed by Emerald Fennell. 2020. A young woman turns a past trauma into a social responsibility. To take revenge on every predatory nice guy who thinks that he wants her. Greetings from our homes to yours. Whether you're new to Crow Talk or a seasoned listener, you're joining us during a singular time in 21st century history. As you're critically aware, coronavirus has rerouted normal life, tipping everything expected on its head. This podcast is no exception. Instead of recording season three episodes from our studio at Western Washington University, we will be podcasting from our couches and remote workstations. We will use headphones with tiny microphones as dogs bark outside and our partners quietly bring us tea. Just as the quality of our production must shift, so has the dynamic of film viewing. So, welcome to our Season 3 series, streaming in the time of COVID, where we will reflect on the experience of viewing, share yays and nays, squawk our opinions, and consider takeaways, things we want to remember moving forward about this film, or film in general. Happy Love Month! Oh. <laughs> Rochelle Cassidy, will you be my Valentine? Aww. Sure. Absolutely, Stacy. <gasps> yes. Nice of you to ask. Your candy hearts are in the mail, I'm sure. That's very traditional. I like to keep it traditional. This film was not so traditional. No. No, not at all. In every single way. <laughs> On every level. Um, is like the candy heart of my year. Ooh, that sounds like a yay, Cassidy. There's a lot of yay. There's so much yay. Okay, so much yay. Give me one, give me two, give me 12. One yay for you is how the film carried the excruciating weight of toxic masculinity. That was pretty amazing slash intense. Yay. 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 (laughs) A big yay for me would be that this film serves up an outrageous and prevalent issue that we in society or in the world really tend to look away from. We get really up close to it and it's perfect colorful candy wrapper delivery makes it so palatable. And then we open it up and we're like, oh no, what did I do? I'm eating this now. Yum? Question mark. (laughs) I would say yes, it's definitely yummy because we're so in need of more films like this that can act as a vehicle for this type of content too, kind of like what you said, Stace. I think my yay is the turning point of this film. I can't really get into that because I don't want to give spoilers away yet because I was already eating those candy hearts. I was in it. I was like, yes, 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 yes. And then the film turns in an expected and unexpected way, whatever. We'll get into it later, but yay. I love it. It's like a mystery yay. How about some nays? Reasons why audiences might have trouble with and or avoid promising young women. I think that it could be a little triggering, particularly for anyone who is or has been gender typed as woman. (laughs) I have the same nay, which these were our nays for the last podcast we did too. But yeah, it's triggering content and like intense too. It's not only triggering in sexual assault, but just in all of the fears we have as women. Wow. 
yeah, if you don't like your adrenaline to pump quite a bit through a film, like maybe don't watch this one or do and just deal with that because it's worth it. Or don't because you're a victim. And a potential nay for me, though, I don't know how much of a nay I actually consider it to be, just that there are some specific filmmaking choices made, camera angles, storytelling devices that may actually distract some viewers. We're pretty good at knowing what's best or following a script that's familiar. And so when we look at things from a perspective that is potentially new or is embedded with a message that we're not familiar with, it can be uncomfortable. And so once the creative reasons come full circle, I think that that eradicates the nay. But in the moment, sitting with something uncomfortable uh, in this film, I think, could be just something, I guess, to be aware of as a viewer that, you know, you might be looking at someone in an upshot that seems ill-cast and then you realize it's foreshadowing for their character. And it's just really interesting filmmaking choices uh, that maybe we aren't expecting. So that's my non-nay. <laughs> it's my cheat nay. <laughs> Cheating nay. I feel like ours were cheaty nays too. They were just like the most really? obvious thing. It was like, well, that's I mean, the it only just... nay I could come up with because I don't well, have any nays. That's why it feels kind of, and well, it was triggering yeah. for me. Like it, it is. Was. Yeah, it is triggering. I think that there's something there to, I mean, you know, we obviously have plenty of nays for films that we watch. Uh, and you know, there will be more that we could probably dive into or dig into about this film and that they might creep up as we speak. But right now I'm a little bit just enraptured by Emerald Fennel and and everything that she's accomplished and working on right now. You know, I, I wasn't able actually to find her short careful how you go. I wasn't actually able to find that short. It was made in 2018 and premiered at Sundance. I saw the trailer, but I couldn't find a way to view it. And I wish I would have. I have seen uh, Killing Eve and she ran the second season. And I very much enjoyed her as Camilla Parker Bowles in season three and four of The Crown. She was a stunning casting choice, played opposite so well and obsessed with her tooth gap. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but Stacey, you haven't seen The Crown yet. Not, I'm not that far, no. Got it. But I did read that she was in The Crown. Okay, well, so spoiler, that's coming. <laughs> I mean, the whole thing, it's hard to spoil The Crown because, you know. It's true. It's just, yeah, just we real know We kind of know how it all goes down. <laughs> and did you know that Emerald writes horror novels? Oh, that's awesome. I didn't. <laughs> yeah, what? she released a series, a two-book series Shiverton Hall in 2013 and 14 and a standalone book called Monsters in 2015. And I really did get like horror vibes from the trailer of her short film, which features Phoebe Waller-Bridge. So uh. and that's worth seeking out. I mean, I just I'm hoping to find it, you know, as, as time goes on and it'll maybe become available. But like I said, I'm just I'm really quite enraptured with with Emerald at this point in time. Just out the gate, it's amazing to have this be your second project, your first feature to unfold like this. 
We've seen quite a few. Well, I don't know if we've seen quite a few, but we've seen a couple directorial debuts during Crow Talk. And this one is just so stunning. And I just think it goes to show what, you know, lesser known directors can do with a real budget. It's cool to see a working relationship with people giving a lot of money to unknown directors or lesser known directors. And I wonder how much of a influence Margot Robbie had on Emerald Fennell's directorial experience, how much control she had. I don't know. It's just cool. Producers don't get as much credit. And I'm really intrigued by the fact that Margot Robbie is a producer. And I also read that she was maybe thought to be the lead Carrie Mulligan's role. She was going to maybe play Cassie, or I read that that was speculated. I read something about her her reading through it and really loving the role and then feeling like she would be a very obvious, very expected choice and wanted to see an actor in the role who would bring something very new and fresh and unexpected uh, and enter Carrie Mulligan, who I guess Emerald met. They met when they were like 18 years old on a TV show. Uh, one of their first jobs, both of them, because they're both 35, <laughs> which is the age I am, listeners. Somebody give us $10 million <laughs> to make a movie. Please hurry up. But they hadn't seen each other like since way back then. I guess Michael Fassbender was also on this show. And so that's a fun connection for Carrie Mulligan and Shame and the work they've done together. But anyway, I just I found that connection to be intriguing and they always say that like Hollywood is small um so Carrie Mulligan is is amazing I love her in this role and she's just such a versatile actor I read a thing that a reporter who is actually a gay man he came out and was like how would I make this judgment but he didn't directly say this but alluded to in a in a quote of one of his articles that essentially Carrie Mulligan took it as him saying that she wasn't hot enough to be believable in the role. And number one, completely disagree with that. Number two, I like seeing a more realistic type of a woman. Margot Robbie is beautiful, obviously, and amazing, but she's almost like Barbie doll pretty. Like she's so perfect and beautiful. I like seeing more real looking women. Not that Margot Robbie's not real looking because she is. She's just a level of beauty that not all of us can achieve. And Carrie Mulligan is just super relatable in her performance, too, just in how she carries herself also. Well, and Margot Robbie is, for me now, in this Justice League genre portraying Harley Quinn. So she already has this kind of revenge story going And so I'm so grateful that they didn't do that because the casting and where the actors were coming from, I felt was very deliberate in how they cast the men. So to have Margot Robbie is too obvious, in my opinion. Carrie Mulligan is so unassuming. You would never expect that actor looking at her body of work to get typecast into this kind of film because it is such a genre piece. It felt like a horror film, even. Yeah, kind of at the turning point for me. It was the turning point. That for me is where my heart was just like horror movie level of racing. I did want to go back and say that. So Dennis Harvey is a 30-year freelance critic for Variety magazine. And the 
the quote was, Mulligan, a fine actress, seems a bit of an odd choice as an admittedly many-layered apparent femme fatale. Margot Robbie is a producer here, and one can perhaps too easily imagine the role might once have been intended for her. Whereas with this star, Cassie wears her pickup bait gear like bad drag. Even her long blonde hair seems a put on. And Carrie Mulligan's response was like essentially paraphrasing offhandedly in this interview that they said I wasn't hot enough. Um, and then Variety published a retraction. Well, they published um, an apology is a better way of putting it, which sent the filmosphere spinning. I thought he only said something on Twitter and did not apologize. So more people may have said things, um, but this was this was specific to Dennis Harvey's original uh, critic review of the film. And he had said this. This was like a year ago. This was one of the very first uh, pieces released. And so when she commented on it, she commented on like 10 months later after the it had already been published or, or whatnot. And so it was really interesting because lots of people weighed in and someone that I follow on Twitter and Letterboxd, Scott Tobias for the next picture show, actually got really angry or frustrated uh, and had a little moment on Twitter on the 29th, so like not even a week ago. And he said, Dennis Harvey is a good man and he's a pro's pro, an absolute workhorse who turns out two or three reviews a day at film festivals, often with an extraordinarily tight publishing window. He doesn't deserve this. Imagine writing 30 years for an outlet and for shockingly modest rates, in my opinion, and being thrown under the bus because a movie star complained about a review you'd written nearly a year earlier. This is a freelancer's nightmare. And people went crazy in the comments. Not like bad crazy, but like misogyny isn't going to get you anywhere. You're on the wrong side of this argument, you know, weighing in. And it was pretty interesting to see men standing up for other men and not necessarily looking at the big picture here that because he's only... a good guy. Exactly. He's like, you don't understand the power play here. Kept saying to people that. And I just wanted to be like, well, you know, you don't understand the power play, the power that men have exerted over women for all of time. And Also, your oh. argument is poetic for the theme of this movie. Oh, he's a good he's a good guy. He's a good guy. Yeah. We could weaponize the shit out of that. Mm-hmm. After like that's essentially what this film has done. It's weaponized the good guy. So shut up about the good guy. No offense, like respectfully. Please shut your mouth with the good guy, especially in context of this film. It's just poetic to me and so ironic that 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 is his argument. He must not have watched the film first before weighing in. He said it had nothing to do with that. That it's not about that. It's about the importance. I stand of next to him. He must not have seen it. He must not have seen it because he must have known if he would have seen it. Like, that's basically like shooting yourself in the foot to even say that. This apology that Variety issued, which just is very rarely done. I think it was a magazine released one in like 2018. It's just very infrequent. Is apparently throwing this writer under the bus. And now he may not write for them anymore. You know, so it's like this whole, like, how dare you mentality. I just. Uh, it's I wild. Okay. I read that he, Dennis, the nice man, the good man, I read he didn't apologize. Like, he addressed it in a tweet, but never, like, 
apologized. Oh, no. No, I have no apology related to him. It was just variety issues. It was variety. An I apology. just wanted to make yeah. that clear Sorry. that like, it was yeah. not the good guy that owned what he said. And even on that, like, that did offend someone that starred in the film. Like, I don't It's just adorably poetic. But all that to say, I agree. Carrie Mulligan's casting in this case was a departure from what she's done in the past. And that's exactly what we needed to see. Because one of my favorite aspects of Cassie, to the point where it just felt like she wasn't even acting. It was just so real. Carrie became the every woman. Well, the every white woman. But she became the every girl. You know what I mean? She she embodied uh, a person who is drowning in their grief and has chosen a buoy that is a secret that keeps them separate and, I mean, probably removed, turned off from their outer world so that she can pursue this this vengeance, this revenge. Uh, I thought she was going to be killing everybody going into this movie. Same. <laughs> Same. That was a shock. And she was pretty, I mean, she was intense, but she wasn't, like, violent really ever, like, outwardly violent. No. Ah, this is... It's one of the most brilliant takes on a story. It's like taking a terrifying horror story that every woman has been told for her entire life and twisting it. And I mean, we don't necessarily not become the victims, but it's empowering almost in a way. Uh, even though the outcome of the film isn't at all what I expected at all. At all, at all, at all. The whole time, everything kept surprising me. I just continually was so surprised. There was nothing that I was like, oh, yeah, mm -hmm. saw it coming. Nothing, not a second. Ooh, it's like run, Lola, run almost. It was like almost that level of like, ka -ka 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 -ka. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, then we got to get to the that, that switch, that turning point you're talking about, Cassidy. So let's talk about loser number one. So what I like to call Adam Brody's character. Loser number one. So... At the bar, she's passed out. His friends are throwing down really awesome language. Like, they put themselves in danger just asking for it. All these cliches that we've heard forever that people really still say and believe. Mm -hmm. Then, nice guy, that uh, loser number one is, offers to take her home. Right? Then he takes her to his place and serves up kumquat liqueur. Why? A full glass She's basically passed out, goes into her panties. Are you kidding? Like, this the is ridiculous. The that men have oh to, to get laid. It's terrifying. It's all the kumquat liqueur makes it scarier to me. Like, oh, my God. She doesn't Go kiss on. back. No consent. We have no idea what happens to him. She goes back to what I like to call her little book of predators. <laughs> <laughs> To make her notes, I still think she killed him. You thought she was living her little, like, murder life. Yeah, especially yeah. with that very Harley Quinn-esque walk home. Mm -hmm. They're just strolling, face straight, jelly donut, cat collar. <laughs> she just stands there uncomfortably long okay, and stares she at is, them. Ooh, she's taking it back again. Like, ugh. how has nothing like this come out yet? <sighs> like, oh, it was so good. I can't wait to use that move wait someday. do you think that she carved on him though no carved nina no. into his belly no 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 but what no. about the blood on she, her leg that's jelly 
That is jelly. It's jelly. I thought, yeah. yeah. I thought it's it was a, blood. Yeah. It's a pan up. Yeah. Man. It's a pan up. That's what I imagined when I was watching it. And I was finally like, oh, this is a this is a donut. This is very decadent. And I really liked that mood. Continuing oh. to establish and layer that mood. Because she's dressed as a business individual, mm-hmm. you know? And so then we still don't even know what her life is like. You know, cut to returning to this house, this prissy girl bedroom. Oh, man. Okay, that house. Oh, <laughs> I want to live there and I would change nothing. (laughs) Did anyone else get like virgin suicide vibes, but like on a level? It's like next bracket up in income. It's like the house that, (laughs) what is his name? Guadagnino. Luca. What's his name? Luca Guadagnino. The one that he used for that Vanity Fair spread with Emma Stone and the dogs, which internet, if you're listening, maybe we should just link that. (laughs) Okay, we'll just link it all. description. It's It's so so beautiful. Welcome to my dream home and my dream movie. I thought it was going to be a movie and it was just a photo (laughs) series. (laughs) But that house was my dream and seeing Jennifer Coolidge in a film more like this, like it was cool because she kind of, I know she didn't play a big character but it kind of broke her mold mm-hmm. like it broke her out of the like dumb blonde mold mm-hmm. and into something more complex even though she was still like super peripheral I loved her I was so happy to see her there well Same. especially playing off of Clancy Brown like and you get a lot more of him you know toward the end of the film but I felt like we got more of both of them because he seemed to be a little bit more of like the voice for the parents. Mm-hmm. Like maybe there is this rift, you know, between mother and daughter, but dad swoops in and tries to like be encouraging and bridge that gap. It was pretty cute and very subtle mm-hmm. for me. Loser number two. Okay. Drugs as an excuse. Ugh. Cocaine. Boring. Also, Talking about being a guy in the world and how women don't need makeup. Oh, my God. I love how Emerald layers all of these ridiculous things that men say. Like, they keep saying, especially the good guys. I just just don't have words for the brilliance of the writing in this film. I mean, it really is the writing. That's it. That's where it's all stemming out of. Mm -hmm. And it brings concepts forward that I've never really considered almost like the way that she layers everything together and puts it as parody almost you know it's like it leaves me feeling dumbfounded over and over again it made me feel hysterical sometimes you know in a very frantic way because I kept turning from hysterical euphoria over the craft and how multi-layered and deep everything was. But then I also just felt the crushing weight <laughs> of what women have to navigate. Just of being a woman. Yeah. It made yeah. me think of all the shit that I put up with, particularly as like a teenage girl, not living in a post Me Too time, you know, and all the all the stuff that I just allowed, you know, where you were normalized. Totally. To. Yeah, which we all were. We all are still. Exactly. And I feel like that was the space that Cassie was in. She was living beyond her breaking point, which is sometimes how we, sometimes I feel like women collectively 
are are having to live now past this breaking point, which the Me Too movement, I think, has helped illuminate it. And so that's why when we get feedback from these male critics, they're like, he's such a good guy. It's like, stop, <laughs> shut up. And it makes you, yeah, you have to like <laughs> smile because it's ridiculous. So that's what that movie... <sighs> Every at every moment, I just kept getting further down this yeah ma- this man this manhole of manhole. I was trying to say mania, <laughs> and then manic at the same time made me manhole. feel manic. Well, and you're saying how there there was this extreme quality, and I think that that's what was so refreshing is that because of her pursuit and her commitment to essentially like social commentary, like social responsibility and accountability that she's putting herself in danger and being mistreated again and again and again versus the times where it happens, you know, once here or once there uh, to each individual woman. She's going after it and seeking it out uh, to spread the message because we learn at the end of this scene you know, that she actually talks to loser number two. And in a threatening way, I felt like a threat there because you really didn't know if she was going to go nuts. Uh, and because I still thought she might be killing them. and But she doesn't. And then we get to see her, you know, add his name again. And then you realize that she didn't kill loser number one either, that she's just getting in these guys' faces and saying, yes, you did do this. No, you are not a good guy, scum of the earth. I was passed out. I asked for a cab. I gave you no consent. At least you didn't do it anyway when I was passed out. That was like a boon for loser number two. So accurate. How crazy is it that a woman that's conscious and aware is a threat? And that she's threatening and scary to these good guys. That to me is another like dumbfounding moment of like, oh my, oh my God, men are threatened by a woman who has her own authority over her own body. They're threatened by that a was... promising young woman. Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> well, and it reminds me of uh, a character we meet a little bit later who, after realizing what her motivation is, he yells into the abyss of the night, why do you guys have to ruin everything? Okay. I think it's guys in this circumstance that are ruining everything. Yet it goes right back on her because now she's no fun. Now she's no fun. Now that she's not drunk, not passed out, exactly like what you were saying, Cassidy. Promising young woman, absolutely. Yeah, these are simple, simple things. Simple truths. That we were taught in preschool. Keep your fucking hands to yourself. And then we unlearn. Women, the vast majority, don't have that luxury to not learn it. So we get that introduction to her method. But as Bo Burnham's character gets more involved, this blast from the past, she's a former medical student. As he gets more familiar and warms his way into her heart, she learns that the true villain at the root of her story has returned from, I believe, London and is now about to embark on marital bliss with some unsuspecting gal having never had to pay for anything that she caused in her past, specifically to her best friend, Nina, who died by suicide 
we are led to believe. That's what I thought. I held out hope that she was still alive. And then I'm like, well, what would that be like? So he returns. And then something clever, very clever happens in the writing. We are introduced to what turns out to be a five-act structure of what is beautifully coined the takedown. So, you know, act one, we have lunch with Madison. Sweet Allison Brie Madison. In the last few films we've seen her in, she wasn't quite as sweet. No. Nope. Again, dumbfounded. It's taking all these instances that women do, too, where we're not allies to one another, where we brush it off. And maybe it is we're all a bit callous because of how inundated we are by the male gaze on a day-to-day basis, just the amount of shit that happens to women daily. I feel like Emerald Fennell did the same thing there that she did with the nice guys, too, where it's just adding in all of these instances that happen to women in cases of sexual assault and then glazing it over with, like, a lunch between college friends. She makes it very digestible in an adrenaline-pumping sort of way. The sobriety thing is crazy, like using sobriety as a weapon throughout because she's doing that in that scene as well. And uh, it's just such a cool revelation in filmmaking. I feel like to use sobriety like as a weapon and she's not doing anything violent with it. She's just being sober and being present. This first act is our introduction to Cassie's exploration of culpability and shame and determining whether or not people have learned. She's giving people the opportunity to grow and change and learn and evolve and recognize past wrongs. And Madison is, of course, our first opportunity here. And as the lunch progresses, I felt the tension building. And of course, you're immediately recognizing that, you know, Madison is is drinking a lot because there are looks being exchanged with the wait staff, uh, etc. But I really wasn't expecting and I ultimately didn't quite understand what happened at the end of this scene when Cassie pays a friend or an acquaintance to take over by leading Madison to a hotel room. I really didn't want to believe that she had paid someone to to assault Madison, but I didn't know what to think. Yeah, and I guess I feel like that actually, Rochelle, is this one of the instances for you that kind of took you out of the film at all? Or This is one of those, yeah, one of those storytelling moments where you just can't believe it's one thing, but that's really what it seems like it's going to be. And that is very hard to hold and look at. And I feel like it wasn't like super addressed, even at the end. It was kind of just like breezed over. Well, she says specifically that nothing happens. Right. But st- I mean, I know he just, they pretended that something had happened. It was a very like son-in-law situation. Nice reference. Yeah, it happened. <laughs> but I do, I feel that too, Rochelle, now that we're like needling into it, that that was kind of confusing. And she had like met her for, she was like day drinking. And it's like, yeah, day drinking. You're staying at a hotel now. Like, or she's so drunk as like, Uh, Yeah. Anyway, if we're really to get into it, that was all a little bit confusing, that moment of Carrie Mulligan's revenge. Yeah, I just didn't know how far she'd go. It's sort of like how I thought that she was originally killing people because I went into it thinking like these heights of violence. I thought anything was possible. And though I wasn't uh, 
confused in the scene. I was uncertain about what had happened. And really, I felt like the the point of that was getting to the heart of the fear that it could be me and how some people can only understand and believe assault happens if it happens to them. I mean, yeah, that seems like you nailed it because especially the way Alison Bree's character reacts later in the film and kind of doesn't necessarily come full circle, but she does show growth and a semblance of alliance maybe with Cassie. I think that the device does work on a wide appeal level. You know, I think that... Fennel really leans into the genre early on and relies on the misdirection of the thriller horror genre to lure a wider audience in because this could have gone very... Axe murder. Well, I mean, yeah, that's a genre (laughs) that people want to watch that has wide appeal. It's ridiculous. It's the dark comedy. So she's playing on that wide appeal bigger demographic audience to get people watching this film which is so brilliant super smart and she's also one by one speaking to each of those audience members in this first act it's the person who will only believe someone else's experience if it happens to them and in the second act it's if that experience happens to someone they love like when she goes to school admissions and we get to talk to Dean Walker, Connie Britton, whom I love. So much fun to see her. There were so many great pop-up characters in this film that I wasn't expecting because I didn't look too deep. But it was great to watch her go to pieces over her own daughter who could potentially be in a dangerous circumstance after Cassie Veronica Mars lures her to some diner to see her favorite band or something like that. It was just such a great little lying Veronica Mars tidbit. I liked it so much. Veronica Mars. But the Dean only cared this time because it was her own daughter, and she did not care when Nina reported to her years ago. The culpability piece that you were talking about, Rochelle, everyone was standing trial on this film who has been complicit in a sexual assault situation. And all of the characters that were picked are such key players in so many sexual assaults in the real world, too. Yeah, speaking to that audience, absolutely. And then, you know, we get the lawyer, which speaks to the entire monetary side of benefiting from crimes against women. But here we get the culpability. Here we get someone who actually feels remorse and whose life seems to have completely fallen apart due to not just this one case, but the piles and piles and piles of cases just like it, just like Nina's case, and all of the dirty dealings that went on behind closed doors with bonuses, et cetera, at his law firm, and how this lawyer just could not live with himself anymore. I'm curious what the guy outside who she paid to do something to the lawyer, I wonder what he was going to do. because She calls him off because the lawyer has remorse. Yeah, in the moment I assumed murder because it still wasn't very clear what was happening. But yeah, I hadn't even considered it after the film finished and we all understood what she was doing. What was that guy going to do? 
carbonina into his belly. Yeah, I mean, I feel like she was just using it. At that point for me in the film, I was like, okay, so she's not killing people. She's just like scaring the shit out of them in one way or another. And we also have the entire romance undercurrent, which is pulling her back into herself. She's opening up. She's finding trust again. And so then you have this mirror. And as she's navigating all these difficult emotions and just realizing that Al is back and trying to confront all of these people and hold them accountable, then you have, you know, Bo's character, Sweet Ryan. And he obviously has no idea what's going on, but we get to see remorse from a lawyer and then we see absolutely no understanding of responsibility from Ryan's character in the switch moment for their relationship when Madison lets her know that there was a video and Ryan's voice is in the background. Again, like, I mean, this whole movie, I feel like the reason your adrenaline pumps the whole way through is because you keep getting hit with things like that over and over and over again, and it's not subtle at all. I mean, to a point, I was, I kind of was expecting her and Bo to fail, I guess, at a point. I didn't know how, but I became skeptical of him just because of the trajectory of everything else. I think that the trailer portrayed him as a bad guy. Or I think anyway, that I had that feeling going in before the movie started. I was like, oh, yeah, Bo's going to be a bad guy. So I'm, I'm not sure why I thought that. But I was waiting for for that to happen. I mean, and it just begs the question of like what I just it must be difficult for some men to watch this, even though that seems like a skewed opinion. But it just shows that even in like the smallest instances where you think that you haven't done anything wrong, the thing that men are lacking is an understanding of a female's experience in a modern world where we've been so objectified. So it's really just like, yeah, Ryan becomes the the person in the audience who stands by, who is just as liable, even though they didn't commit the act they committed the act of silence and then they told themselves that it was okay for so long that they forgot that they were there. I wonder if he did forget though, or if he was just saying that to her. I bet he, I think he knew. I know you would think. I mean, if he was witnessing rape, like people getting assaulted in front of him, I'm sure he knew and he just told her to save himself or that was my take on it. I don't know. It's like, But this goes into how we view these situations. You know, men don't see that. They didn't see that as sexual assault. They saw a girl who was drunk and guys who were drunk. And they, that was all fine. There was nothing untoward. There was no assault there. So my, that's kind of my takeaway with Bo's characters. Towards the end, he unravels. And it is clear that he knows he fucked up. But I think that most men are don't really see that as assault. That's the message that we've been given. Well, and he, you know, created a great baseline for leading into the bachelor party, which he's essentially the conduit to her getting to be there. That's why I was critical of Bo's character from the beginning because of the juxtaposition, the closeness he had to her past. It's like, ugh, it's going to come up. He was there or he was involved or something. I felt that. And I needed that because I I didn't necessarily need her to have some sort of great love story in this movie. And so he leads her, gives her the information to what we do, what we think will probably be one of the last pieces of this plan because we don't know how many acts she's planned. And she goes to the bachelor party with, with quite the agenda. And then we see the opposite side, the elevation 
no longer is this baseline Ryan. These are people who will kill and dismember and burn someone up. Holy shit. I mean, the again, the poetry of the film being called Promising Young Woman, where she gets suffocated to death by the perpetrator is gross, but it's poetry. I mean, like, that, I think, hit me the hardest of just, like, whoa, this film is so masterful. <laughs> because I guess up until that point, I still had hope for her. The relationship for me was her and Bo humanized her in a different way, where you, like, through that relationship, for me, at least as a viewer, I was able to get to know Cassie more as just a person that wasn't out for revenge, just as, like, a struggling woman. Mm-hmm. So I had I I was not expecting her. I was scared for her safety for sure, but I I was not expecting for her to get murdered. I was not expecting for that turn to happen, and the fact that it does, and that the film is called Promising Young Woman is just very profound in my opinion. Yeah, I kept waiting for her hand to twitch, <laughs> come back up, and just oh, stab him. No, because that is not the ending of this story. That's not the ending of violence and assault that goes unaddressed. You know, in Mm -hmm. many cases, most perpetrators that commit murder have a history of assault. Mm -hmm. I spent so much of the movie thinking that she was going to kill someone or was killing someone. So then it comes to the end of the film and she's the one who gets killed. Almost in like a sacrificial way, it felt like for me. And then I think about the title, Promising Young Woman. And I'm thinking about all these young men's lives who've been so concerned of ruining for so long and how they were called a promising young man with such a bright future that was robbed from him because this person slandered him. And wow, I found myself wondering if Cassie went there thinking that she would die. Well, of course she did. She sent all of those alerts and stuff. I feel like she knew the high likelihood of what was coming. And I feel like she was already depressed. And there had been hints of her not ever being able to overcome it and being really, you know, they hinted at her mental health a lot throughout the entire film. So I think she very much knew that there was a very high likelihood that she would be killed. I also think that she was planning on dying as part of her last gesture to, or rather her attempt to get any sort of justice for Nina because she had tried the justice system and it didn't work. And so she attached a murder to the sexual assault case, which will get, will get a lot of attention. As we saw at the very end, the police showed up finally and arrested everyone. And she was so smart, too, like how Bo talked about how well she did in meds. You know, she was just painted as such a brilliant woman, like superior to those around her and her intelligence. I found the father to potentially be problematic as well. When the mother is out of the room, he's talking to the detective and saying that he is concerned about her mental health or that maybe there's a history of mental health. And then the detective shares that with Ryan, which Ryan then confirms and it's just a giant fuck you. She even says it in a, a moment in the film where she says, I don't think I'm crazy or something to that effect. 
I didn't see her having any mental health issues. She had no mental health <laughs> None. issues. No, she was, I mean, she was angry. She was traumatized. Raged. She has crazy secondhand right. trauma. Like, that's all crazy. But her, she was calm, cool, collected, making very rational decisions. You called it with the sobriety, Cassidy. It's oh, so calculated. It's, yeah, it's the calculation of it all and just how the writing in this just highlights how just being a normal woman who's self-aware is threatening. Right. And even the people who are good, dad, dad is good. The detective, he is hopefully good. But even she gets gaslighted through that chain of communication. You know, it's all of these men saying what this woman is. I don't care what your intentions are or what your relationship is to this woman. That's not correct. That's not okay. When even with officers on the scene of assaults, you know, oftentimes the first officers that show up are male and they're just cops. They're not trained in rape necessarily or sexual assaults. You know, those people, you know, and I don't think they're all necessarily women, but, you know, the first people to the scene of those types of crimes, a lot of the times are not the people who have been appropriately trained to handle victims that have just experienced such trauma. And I just love how much of a spotlight this is all shining on that in kind of a curveball vessel that none of us were quite anticipating even going into this film knowing the content that it was going to cover. Well, and they're just some of the the small details Choosing to cast Laverne Cox, who's fabulous as Gail, doesn't have a ton of screen time, but is such a buoy in that cafe that it's very reminiscent of a local shop here in Bellingham, Cafe Blue, uh, that our friends own. And uh, Gail brightens up that space, is a really fun, sarcastic friend, and is the person that Cassie leaves her half of her necklace to. Of course, we see Nina's in, you know, the charred rubble that is the remains of Cassie's body. But she gives her half of her heart to Gail to pass it on. And what a gorgeous moment of inclusion to pull in all women and say, we're, we're in this together. And yeah, this is a, this, we don't know Nina's heritage. We get to meet, you know, her mother, uh, um, Mrs. Fisher, and she's white. Uh, but I liked the ability to pull other women in and to identify how much, trauma women in general have been experiencing forever and that it's really up to us to carry on that message and to require and and seek and advocate for justice and for voices and the lengths that Cassie goes in this film to get like you said Stacy to get that justice that the legal system had completely robbed Nina of and based on what the lawyer says pretty much all women who come forward, there are so few ways to to be heard. And I appreciated it being subverted even for me, the person who went in thinking I was going to watch a movie about a woman killing a bunch of people, a bunch of men, predatory men. I just can't wait for more women to make more film. Like That's always the bottom line for me because I feel like this is almost like a woman taking on like an action film, sort of. Uh, we've talked about this before. And a rep- I think I said this in our last 
podcast, a person from the Neon Distribution Company talked about how a lot of times women take on films that have really tough subject matter, like rape. But this film, and I feel like we've been saying this as well about a lot of films, but it almost feels like kind of a new genre where it's a woman empowering women in telling the story just by telling it, uh, but packaging it sort of different. Like it felt more like an action movie or I don't want to say it is a dark comedy, but it, it wasn't just that. But I'm excited to just see more women making more film and more ways of tackling the same type of subject matter that we as women see and struggle with. And, you know, it's all very nuanced, too. There's so many different ways to tell these stories. And I just hope I think a lot about like true crime and murder stories and how that's just like so accessible to find stories about that. And with sexual assault, that's very different. I feel like more films and stories about sexual assault are coming out more recently, like you know, since the, I mean, even since like 2010, I just feel like it, it's not a, a topic that's covered a ton. And a lot, of, a lot of the times when it is, it's more like the girl with the dragon tattoo style, like really brutal and really scary where this kind of turns it a little bit where it's more digestible on the mainstream level. I don't know if she, it changed a genre a little bit for me. And it makes me feel like women sh- Like, just keep going, ladies. More action movies, more stories that we can tell and that we can shed the appropriate type of light on, you know? And I mean, not saying necessarily like, yeah, let's all go make sexual assault stories. But I think the more of them that are out there, the more understanding that there will be, the more attention that there could be for policy change. You know, it can all lead to change and empathy. It's like a genre hybrid. It's like taking all the ways genre has failed women. Even with your Lisbeth Salander reference, Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, she carves, is it pig into his stomach in that film? And I got those vibes immediately uh, when Cassie threatens to carve Nina's name, begins to try to carve Nina's name into Al's body. It's really like reclaiming all the ways that storytelling has troped and misled and pandered and continued to break down women, the reality of women, that true story, and reframed, repackaged, and renewed, almost showing us what it could have been. But now it is. And so let's keep going. Yeah, it's just such a fascinating time as as people to be viewing film, to watch it grow and expand and and for women to get their hands on the wheel and like take a turn driving. Uh, it's just every time I find it refreshing, even if it's an adrenaline packed watch or covering hard content matter, I think it's just really fascinating to see different types of human beings being able to drive a film from producer to writer to director to lead actresses. It's just really exciting to see. I think the only thing that I wanted to ask you two about was the lack of the word rape. I don't think the word rape was ever said in that film. And I thought that that was really intentional. And I was wondering if if you, if any of you picked up on that or if that even like stuck out to you at all. Well, now that you say that it didn't, but it makes me think of We Are Columbine, which was a documentary that I believe came out in 2019. And it's about the survivors of the Columbine shooting. And they never once in that whole film, and they address not doing it, name the assailants, not one time, because the whole film is not about them. 
the story of Columbine is not about them. It's about how people survived, you know, just shining the light on the survivors and where they are now and their experience, you know, talking about people who survived. And I thought that was really a really beautiful thing to do. And I really liked how they addressed their choice in doing that. Uh, And the device feels like it could be similar here. You know, it's more about it's shining the light on the fucking good guys. Think about what you're doing, good guys. You know, it's not about. I felt like this wasn't so much this film wasn't poised so much about like the the victims of assault. It was shining the light on like, hey, good guys, what things are you doing or not doing to not live up to being a good guy or a nice guy? Like that to me is where the lens is like focusing, at least as far as like things to take away and percolate on silently as an audience member where it's not necessarily like pointing a finger being like, you guys really suck. But like sitting in the audience after that, I mean, we're sitting there thinking about all of these times that we felt that way as a woman. So like, what are men thinking? after watching a film like this, you know? And I wonder if it was divisive in that sense where it's trying to shine the light more on the lack of morality, even if if it's on a very minuscule scale in your mind as a man or a woman. Take Alison Brie's character. That, as a viewer, was my feeling walking away from the film was it was more shining the light on men being irresponsible in their own actions and behaviors. The moment when... Madison, Alison Bree's character, tries to explain her response to the video when she saw it originally, this video that she passes on to Cassie, and she tries to remember back to being the girl who thought it was funny, and she's not able to access that anymore. She may not, she's had her own scary experience. She may not have grown that much, but she is struggling to identify with the girl who thought that something like that, that watching someone being raped was funny. And so I think that the intentional choice of not using the word rape really zeroes in on the nebulous nature of of sexual assault and how hard it is for people to hold the truth, the validity, the gravity uh, and, and the nuance of sexual abuse. Um, people a lot of times want to nitpick and say, well, that wasn't rape. Well, you know what? Like, wow, that's the point you want to make? Instead of talking about rape and giving the audience an opportunity to be like, well, but was it really a rape? We just move forward in the nuance, holding who these humans are, their responses, and watching Cassie say, no, no. No, look at what this did. Look at what's but what has been caused. Look at who these people still are. Do you want to be like them? Instead of allowing the audience to get bogged down in a word that so many people are afraid of. That makes sense to me. I, I think her character not using that word and invoking everything that that word means and how it affects people was potentially a part of how she wanted to draw them out, maybe and give them opportunities to come clean. I guess I'm particularly thinking of the scene with Dean Walker, where Cassie explains the event 
and what happened to Nina. And she's very deliberate about the sexual assault. And they had sex with her many times. And when she said that, I was like, yeah, they raped her. Why did you say rape? You know, I was a little like keyed up in that moment. So I like what you have to say about that, reflecting on what that word elicits in other people. It's like the word racist. Mm -hmm. The immediacy of, that's not me, the immediacy of deflection instead of opening up a willingness to discord. Yeah, it's another layer. Yeah, it brings me to my takeaway, which is really, what's it going to (laughs) take? You know, how many bodies will be sacrificed before good guys understand that they're not good guys? But again, filmmakers that are telling these stories and more women that tell these stories because women are the survivors of these instances in most cases. You know, I think in all, at least in America, and I'm sure in most places around the world, we're not really the word rape and instances of that. And all of the blurry lines that involve sexual assault are like tucked in a little corner that we don't talk about. Yeah, I feel like it's not going to change fast enough. That's for sure. But at least there are more mainstream stories being told about these hard topics and being told by many different people because I feel like film is such it's our learning tool these days well and and story feeds into life and life feeds into story and like we were talking about before the podcast started uh, Cassie is loosely framed around the original Cassandra who is a Greek heroine of her own right who is condemned to utter true prophecies and never be believed. And as you look back through antiquity, you're seeing tons of stories of women trying to find different ways of avoiding assault and paying men back for the assault that's already been inflicted on them. And so often in these stories even when they're brought to the modern era, like in Mexico a number of years ago, uh, the woman who coined herself Diana, the huntress of bus drivers, who shot bus drivers because there had been a rampant issue with sexual assault from bus drivers on women having to come home from the night shift in Mexico. And she just took it upon herself to start killing bus drivers not even knowing necessarily if they were the bus drivers who committed these egregious acts, but lumping them all in together. And so violence has been an answer when justice has failed, when our justice systems has fa- have failed us. But violence begets violence. So what I love so much about this story is the ability to take on a revenge mindset that's infused with teaching and confrontation and accountability. In a book I recently finished called Antigone Rising by Helen Morales, she says, revenge fantasies and ancient myths are not scripts to be followed, but they are adrenaline shots for the hurt soul, an essential part of the sexual assault survivor's emergency kit. And so in this story, instead of killing, she gets killed. So we still have to change the story, but we got to 
have conversations in this film with different individuals on different journeys as they're navigating the misogyny and the rape culture that saturates our world. And for that, I think that we've experienced a different type of revenge story. And I cannot wait to see the next stories that don't have to end in someone dying for us to continue to learn, though it was powerful. Very powerful. I tried to see what Fennel's doing next, but I have found no whispers, but I will be actively searching uh, now that the seasons of The Crown that she was a part of are over. And though it was supposed to release in April now, Promising Young Woman is available for rent. It's another one of the $20 rentals, like Emma at the beginning of our season, but we've been waiting to see and review this film since last year. And I personally think it far exceeded my hopes and expectations. So one more brilliant woman to watch out for creating dynamic new ways of telling a very old story. I feel like we should sing a little Paris Hilton. No? Even though the stars even though the <laughs> baby, even though the stars are blind, just show me your love, baby. I'll, I'll show, show you mine. <laughs> This has been a Quarantine Style Talking to Crows production. If you enjoyed this episode, please like, follow, and honor us with that five-star rating. 